If we haven't met before, uh, my name's Tom, and I'm one of the leaders here. And uh, this morning, I don't know if you know this, but there is one thing that unites us all. Even if you are not a Christian here this morning, and you're just exploring, thinking about these things, there's one thing that we all have in common, young and old. We all have a worldview. We all have a worldview. What do I mean by that? I mean a set of beliefs about reality that influences the way that we think and act. We all have a worldview. No one is just neutral when it comes to worldviews. Even those who say they're agnostic, maybe you would put yourself in that place this morning. You have a set of beliefs about reality that impact the way that you think and act. No one keeps their worldview just in their mind. It, it always plays out in the way that we live. This is something that quite a few high-profile atheist thinkers are starting to realize. Now, about 15 years ago, maybe some of you will remember this, there was the rise of the so-called new atheists. Just nod at me or wave your hand if you know what I'm talking about here. So there was a bunch of academics and scientists and writers who uh, kind of rose to prominence with their bold proclamation that God was not real and that uh, religion is a poison in the world. That's kind of what they proclaimed, and they got a lot of prominence as a result of it. Now, what you may not know is that a bunch of those uh, top thinkers and scientists are now despairing at the world that we're living in in the West and are uh, seeing some postmodern ideas circulating in a big way. What do I mean by postmodern? I mean this rising worldview that essentially says that there is no grand meaning to the universe, that there is only interpretations, no facts, no independently existing reality, only ideas that we make up. No truth with a capital T, only individual truths. That's a postmodern worldview, and it's rising in the West in a big way. You'll have heard it in phrases like, I'm going to live out my truth. You'll have heard it in phrases like, you do you, and I'll do me. Now, if you take a few minutes, you probably waste your time to do this, to be honest, but take a few minutes to go onto Twitter and see the, uh, or it's now X as it's called, um, you can see these uh, high-profile atheists going to war now, really, with some people who are very postmodern in their worldviews, arguing with people who are pushing ideas such as there is a, a difference between sex and gender, or that there's more than two sexes. These guys, these new atheists, are now outraged that people are coming up with all kinds of different ideas that are postmodern. But the irony is that they perhaps don't see is that they are pushing against some ideas that actually have arisen from a worldview that their ideas helped to create. Do you understand that? And one person pointed this out to him on Twitter, saying this, Dawkins spent a lifetime telling people they were their own God, and now he's acting surprised when people believe they are their own God. So people like Richard Dawkins, as clever as he may be, are discovering the truth that when a culture turns its back on God and on absolute reality, on absolute truth, essentially anything goes, and it's one person's opinion against another. If there's no creator and there's no reason for creation, if this is all random and a result of chance happenings billions of years ago, then there's no authority to appeal to. It's one word against another. I spoke with someone last week, and uh, they were... Uh, clearly uh, enamored with a postmodern worldview. They were simply saying that there is no truth and it's what you make of it and uh, you just got to love one another. That's the key thing. And I said to this person, 
if I identified as a cucumber, does it make me a cucumber? And he could not say no to me. He said, the universe would affirm that you are a, a cucumber. And I, at that point, had to end the conversation because we weren't going to get very far with it. But really, if there's no authority, if there's no absolute truth, then why not? Why can't I be a cucumber? Why can't I say that that is who I am? You see, this, this, this postmodern worldview is playing itself out in the, in the Western world in a big way, not only in kind of prominent debates around kind of who can identify as what. That is happening, and you've got prominent politicians not being able to define what a woman is, but it's also playing out in something of a mental health crisis in our nation. We have uh, one in every five people in this nation on antidepressants. Now, I am not saying this to stigmatize anyone. There will be people here on antidepressants, and rightly so. They, they will, may well need that for a season. But we have a, a world in which uh, people have no hope, no meaning, no purpose, facing hardships in life with none of those things. And now one in five people are on anti antidepressants in this country. As I say, I'm not stigmatizing anyone. I'm not saying that medication is wrong. But we are in a place where there is a lot of people facing no hope, no purpose in society. So these worldviews are playing out in the way that people live and think and act. We've had this rejection of a Christian worldview on the rise and an embracing of this atheistic postmodern worldview, and it's not making people happy. So we all have a worldview, even if you've never thought about it, even if you've never given much time to thinking through what do I believe? You have a worldview, and it impacts so much of our life. If we're simply highly evolved organisms arising from a cosmic accident billions of years ago, there is no ultimate right or wrong. Anything goes. Suffering and misery are just a product of chaos, which we should expect if we're just arising from an explosion billions of years ago. It has profound consequences on how we live if we believe that to be true. Dawkins himself asks the question, why do we not laugh at judges who punish criminals? He makes the point that when it comes to morality, it's all subjective. It's one man's good against another man's good. And one man might say this is good, and another might say this is good. There's nothing to appeal to higher than our own opinions. Do you understand? And this is, I'd say, the essentially is the, is the dominant worldview in the West right now. You have one life, there's no right nor wrong, get what you can from it, get rich or die trying. Now here's the thing, many people are not prepared to take that worldview to its logical conclusion. Many people still want to believe that there is reason for our existence. Many people still want to believe that there is something more to life than what we see around us. Many people still want to believe that there is objective right and wrong and important things like human rights. But if it's all a chance accident, then a can of Coke has as much, as much rights as a human being. There's, there's just, human rights are just a myth that we make up. They're just stories we tell ourselves. Do you understand that? If it's, if it's all an accident, it's just stuff that we're making up. People want to believe that there is more to it than this. Sometimes people are honest enough to admit that in their worldview, human rights, right and wrong are just stories, not grounded in any reality. But they want to believe deep down that there is more to this. And today, we're going to start a new series 
in the book of John, one of the biographies of Jesus' life that we find in the Bible. And we're going to see right at the outset that there is more to life than this. There is an alternative to that worldview that says there is no meaning and purpose, one that is compelling and one that is ultimately true. Now, John was one of Jesus' best friends. He started following Jesus as a young man. He might have been in his late teens or early 20s. And he describes himself in his book as the disciple that Jesus loved. He was really close to Jesus. And when Jesus is dying on the cross, uh, some years after John started to follow him, Jesus appeals to John and says, John, I want you to take care of my mother. He appeals to his mother, Mary, and says, I want you to take care of John. This is a guy who knew Jesus perhaps better than anyone else. And so we see John as an old man into his 80s or 90s before he dies, wanting to write down some of the key things that Jesus taught and the, some of the key things that Jesus did so that the next generations might know Jesus for themselves. He states the purpose for writing right at the end of the book, John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may have life, sorry, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So we've called this series, Come to Life, and it's our hope that as we journey through the pages of John, that many will come to life, that many will come to see Jesus for who he is, will come to hear of his goodness, and will come to know life in his name. So we're going to turn to John chapter 1, if you haven't done that already, and we're going to read uh, the first 18 verses of chapter 1, and then we're going to see how John lays out his worldview, and we're going to see five pillars, five foundations of that worldview, and we're going to go through them in the rest of the time we have remaining. Here we go, John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is not John who wrote this book. He's talking about John the Baptist, who we're going to hear more about next week. John came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light, he only came as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace 
in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father has made him him known. So the first pillar we see here of John's worldview is that the universe has a story and Jesus is at the center of it. In the beginning. There couldn't be a more dramatic way to open his book. The original readers and the original hearers of these words would have been from a Jewish background and it would have taken them straight back to the Genesis story, the origin of the universe, the origin of life. In the beginning, God created. They're coming back to the outset of it all. They had this understanding that the stars and the planets and all the creatures had a beginning and that God was at the center of it all. And in beginning his gospel in this way, John is saying that this is not just a story about an extraordinary man and his friends. This is a story that is about the whole reason for the universe and Jesus is right at the center of it. He's saying what scientists have only relatively recently caught up with. The universe had a beginning. You see, the Big Bang Theory, maybe over recent decades, has been used as a kind of a gotcha thing to try and convince people who believe in God that we don't need God anymore to explain things. But actually, far from that, the Big Bang Theory actually agrees with what the scriptures teach, is that the universe has a beginning. Because prior to that, most scientists believed that the universe had just already existed. It's just always been there. But actually... They're just starting to catch up with the fact that the universe did have a beginning. And it's very illogical if you think this way. It's very illogical to believe that it just came into being in and of itself. It hasn't always existed. And nor did it create itself. It's not random. And we don't have to make it up as we go along. So I want to ask you a question. What is your worldview? Just take a moment to think about that. Is it an accident? Is all of this here by chance? Or are you persuaded that there is a story, a grand story, that there is a beginning and that behind that beginning is God himself? What John's about to unpack is at the very core of his worldview. It informs his whole life. It shapes his meaning, his purpose, his actions, and his worship. John is here to say that the universe came to exist and right at the center of this creation was God the Father and God the Son. How do I get that from here? Well, we're introduced to this character called the Word and we read that the Word was God and was with God. We then learn that this character called the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The character, as we read on, is Jesus Christ of Nazareth the most celebrated figure in all of history. And Jesus made claims again and again, as we're going to see throughout this series, and as we're going to see in just a little while, that he was the always existing divine son of God. And I'm here to say today that there is purpose and meaning to the universe and to your life, but you'll only discover it My friend, you'll only discover it when you come to see that Jesus is right at the center of all of this reality. 
that he's the one at the center of all things. You'll only discover true life when you come to him because he's right at the center of it all. You could search all over. You could search high and low for purpose and meaning and hope. You'll only find it when you find the one right at the center who's behind it all. The second uh, pillar of uh, John's worldview is this, that God has always been, is and has always been a loving, personal God. Now the question, what was God doing before he created the universe, is one of the most important questions you could ever ask. It's not just something for theology geeks to kind of pour over in theology class. It's one of the most important questions you could ever ask because the answer is so relevant. It tells us profound things about the the character and nature of God. It answers the question, is God love? Because this same John who wrote this biography of Jesus' life, he has a bunch of other letters in the New Testament. And in one of them, in 1 John and chapter 4, we are told that God is love. It's very significant that you grasp this. Because he doesn't say God is loving, that God often loves. He says God is love. It means that in the very nature of who he is, there's never been a time when God has not been love. Understand this, friends, that only Christianity can make that claim. Only Christianity can make the claim that God is love. And it's because of the truth that John unpacks here and elsewhere in his book. It's the truth that God has always existed as three persons, one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is orthodox Christianity. It always has been, and it always will be. It's been a truth that has been defended and celebrated in Christian creeds, statements of Christian belief for 1,700 years. This is true orthodox Christianity, that God is three and one. Core to John's worldview that God is love is the truth that God has always been personal. Just think about it for a moment. If God is a single person, if he hasn't always existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then there will have been a time before the universe was breathed into life where there was nothing and nobody for God to love. And if that were the case, it would therefore not be true to say that God is love. He can't have always been love. He simply would have become love. He would have learned to love. But the picture that John paints for us is that in the beginning was the word who was God and who was with God. And as we're going to see as John's book unfolds in places like Uh, John chapter 15 and verse 26, Jesus will speak of the Father and he sending the Holy Spirit to come and be with the disciples when Jesus is no longer physically with them. And this Holy Spirit is described in personal terms. He's called the comforter, the encourager. He's called the guide. He's an advocate. He's a person and not a force. A distinct person who is himself God. And Jesus would give a great commission to his followers after he had risen from the grave and he'd say all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me therefore go into all of the world and make disciples of me teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you 
and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is he's making it very clear that God is three persons, one God. It's a tricky notion for us to get our heads around. Some of your heads are probably spinning and it's, it's only just turned 10 in the morning. It's so vital that we get our heads around it in some way. It's fundamental to what we believe about God and the universe. And as we'll see, it's a truth that turns lives around. So what was God doing before he created all things? Well, Jesus tells us in John chapter 17 and verse 24. He says, Father, you love me since before the creation of the world. God was not alone. He has always existed as a loving community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father loving the Son. The Son loving the Father in an echoing love, and so on and so on. If God is eternally a Father, eternally loving, eternally life-giving, eternally outgoing, then love is his heartbeat. It's who he is. But if God was alone before he created the world, then love cannot be who he is, cannot be his heartbeat. He was not lonely, friends. He was not needy. Other religions have to admit eventually that God was essentially needy. And so he created the world to fulfill some needs. It's hard to see why else a single person God would ever create other than for self-centered neediness. But the God revealed to us by Jesus relates to his creation out of pure love and grace. Not because he needs you to be his friend. It's all of grace, all of undeserved love and kindness. His love is, is shining out. This is why he created. He's not empty and needing to take. He's full and overflowing with love. And out of the overflow of his love, he created so that more and more may enjoy his love. Not because he needs us, because he's overflowing with love, because it's who he is. That's his heartbeat. He's been life-giving from eternity. He didn't become life-giving. He's always been pouring out love and life. So we've got this God who is three and who is one. The Father is not the Son. We've got an image here that might help us. The Son is not the Holy Spirit, but the Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Three persons, one God, ever loving. It's hard for us to comprehend, hard for us to understand, because there's nothing on this planet that we can compare God to. I know that I'm a tall man, because as I walk around us later on, I'm taller than most of you. So I can understand I'm quite a tall man. You know if you have dark skin, because you'll go around and meet people, and you think, they've got lighter skin than me. You can compare yourself to others in order to define yourself. But listen, God cannot be compared adequately to anything in his creation. Some people might try and say sometimes, well, he's a bit like, he's a bit like water, steam, and ice, you know? They're, they're same essence, essentially, but different forms. But that falls down because you cannot have water, steam, and ice in one place at one time. All things that we try and compare God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit to fall down. But we have to humbly acknowledge God is unlike us. It's, it's good news that he's not like us. He's holy. He's other. We can't adequately compare him to anything in his creation. And the universe was made by this 
God who is intrinsically love, at the very core of who he is, out of the overflow of his love. That changes everything. Because he's not, before all things, a creator or a ruler, although he is those things. Before all things, he is a God of self-giving love. That's good news this morning. That's good news for us. The third pillar of John's worldview, there is great darkness in the world, but the light will win. John makes a bit of a play on words here, which he likes to do, and we'll see that again and again as we go through his book. In verses 4 and 5, he says this, In him was life, and that light was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He's helping them to go back again to Genesis where God said, let there be light, and light was, and darkness fled because the light came. But he's also helping them to see that in the incarnation, as Jesus stepped into uh, flesh, as the always existing Son of God took on flesh and made his dwelling amongst us, pitched his tent amongst his creation, a light was coming into the world. And we see that right at the outset, the darkness opposes the light. We see that Herod and his army try to take Jesus out right from the get-go. We see this opposition from the darkness against the light. And as Jesus uh, grows older and as he starts his earthly ministry of teaching and doing great miracles, he's opposed by uh, the enemy, Satan, the devil, who wants to tempt him and take him out of his mission. There's an opposition from the get-go. And we're going to unpack as we go through this book some amazing statements that Jesus made. He says so many wonderful things of himself in the book of John. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he'll say in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John will keep developing this throughout his book. Jesus is the light bringer. He's the life giver. What John is saying is that just as God said, let there be light, and so there was light. So Jesus, as he took on flesh and entered human history, a great light was entering into the darkness. And we don't need to be convinced that there is darkness in the world. We don't need to be convinced of it. There's darkness all over the place. There is, whether you want to really acknowledge it or not, there is objective right and wrong. There are some things we can say, that is evil, and it's not a matter of opinion. There are some things that we think, that does not belong here. It doesn't feel like this should be here. When we experience abandonment and abuse and betrayal and sickness and grief and murder and war and greed... We, we're surprised by these things when we experience it. Like we don't think they should be here. But again, friends, if this is all an accident, if that's your worldview, you should expect chaos. You should expect these things and not be surprised by them as if they're some guest that's just turned up at your party <laughs> that you didn't invite. This is a dark place sometimes. And the worldview that John has is that we li- is, he says we live in a wo- he's saying we're living in a fallen world. We're living in a world which has turned its back on God's ways and darkness has come in. It's present here and it doesn't belong. But he will say as this unfolds that Jesus 
has come that the darkness might be pushed back and one day totally eradicated from the face of this universe. Through Jesus' perfect life, through his death on the cross in our place, and through his resurrection, one day the darkness will be pushed back. One day the darkness will be no more. We see right at the end of his uh, earthly life here, as he's going to the cross, we see, we see the local government and the religious elite of the day conspiring together. When do these groups ever work together? They're conspiring together to oppose the light. There's darkness and an opposition to the light. Great darkness attempting to snuff out the light. And there on a hill outside Jerusalem called Calvary, the ones who designed the very muscles and ligaments and tendons of the hands, and the one who thought up iron ore and placed it into the rocks, had these iron nails smashed into his hands and feet on a cross. The one who came up with the concept of water suddenly feels saliva dripping down his face as people spit on him and mock him. This is the wonder of what John is just telling us here. The word through whom it was all created became flesh. And he dwelt among us. And on the cross, it looked like for a moment the darkness had truly won. It looked like for a moment that the darkness had snuffed out the light. But it was actually part of the plan of God that Jesus might actually go to the cross for you and I. You see, as we're going to go through John's gospel, we're going to see some earthly reasons why Jesus was opposed. We're going to see some earthly reasons why he was eventually a hunted man. But there was always, underneath it all, a plan of God, a plan that Jesus would go to his death in our place. We're going to see the earthly reasons in places like John chapter 5, where Jesus makes the claims that John is making in John chapter 1. He'd been healing this man uh, who was paralyzed for decades, and he was then opposed because he had healed this man on the Sabbath. So we see in verse 16, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. As we read on in verses 23 to 24, we see Jesus says, whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. He's making it really clear, isn't he? He's the the always existing eternal son of God. It goes on, verse 39, he says this, you study the scriptures diligently. He's speaking to the religious elite of the day who really did study the scriptures a lot. And he says, because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. 
And finally, he says this in verse 46. If you believed Moses, I mean, these guys are devout Jewish guys. He says, if you believe Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. <laughs> Jesus is saying abundantly clear, I am the center of it all. Uh, the, all of the Bible is about me. All of these Old Testament scriptures they would have had, it's all pointing towards me. And this, friends, it irked the, the religious elite in a big way. And there was this kind of bizarre thing because this man from a place that literally was mocked nationally. Nazareth was a place that was joked about. People said, could anything good come from Nazareth? You know, Ipswich, I don't know if you saw this in the Ipswich Star this week, two consecutive days, one website uh, said that Ipswich was um, amongst the top 10 up-and-coming places in the UK to live. Come on, that's great, right? The next day, it was marked as one of the 50 most boring, soul-destroying places in the UK to live. <laughs> well, Jesus was Nazareth. That was one of the most nowhere, backwards, soul-destroying places you can imagine. He's got no, there's no pedigree there in terms of people think he's come from good stock. He's from a poor family. They didn't have much money. And he, is his, he and his disciples are roaming the country with not a lot of money to their name, having to often just sleep rough. Why was this guy opposed so much? Well, he was making these great claims about himself. There's no confusion here about who Jesus really claimed to be. And then eventually the darkness had enough. He cannot go on speaking of himself in these ways. He's making the claims that we read of in Colossians chapter 1, that he is the image of the invisible God, the one through whom and for whom all things were made. There's no mistaking what Jesus is saying. And this enraged the darkness. But it was not a mere tragedy that Jesus ended up on the cross. It's the plan of God, friends. And we're going to see this unfolding in the weeks and months to come. The fourth pillar, the fourth foundation of John's worldview in the time we have remaining is that true salvation is not achievement, it's adoption. Every worldview has a promise of salvation. Every worldview will promise salvation to you. It will look like different things. Many other religions say, if you just try hard enough, if you work hard to outdo the wrong things that you've done in life, then one day you will have earned your way into paradise. Most religions, as they say, do, do, do. A postmodern worldview that's rejected the idea of religion says, if you could just free yourself of the traditions of the past, if you could free yourself of all of these uh, obscure uh, beliefs and practices and just embrace all of your inner desires, then you will really know salvation. Then you'll really know who you really are. And you'll know freedom and joy. That's the salvation that's being offered. It might be, if you can just get to a point of financial comfort, where you no longer have to worry about the car breaking down, where you no longer have to worry about, can I afford to fix something around the home, where you just get to that point of, freedom and comfort, then you will know salvation. And yet we know from our own experience that even if we get to that point, we think, I just need a little bit more than that, actually. I just, just want a little bit more, and then I'll be really comfortable. There's offers of salvation. And yet here, John is here to say that salvation in Jesus' kingdom is not achievement, it's adoption. 
is to be adopted freely as a gift. It's not to earn it. It's not to work your way towards it. It's not through having looked inside yourself to find something that is there. It's actually to believe in Jesus' name and to receive adoption into the family of God. To know God as your father. The right to be called a child of God. That, my friends, is true salvation. To know God as your father. To know the peace that comes from knowing the one who has adopted me has the universe in his hands and he's always been a good and loving God. That's true salvation. Finally, the final pillar of John's worldview is that this great news is for everyone. We exist, friends, to know God. We exist to know him as our father. We exist to worship him for who he is. And Jesus says in John chapter 10 and verse 10, I have come that you may have life and life to the full. To know this God is to know life in all its fullness. To know this one who sent his only son. To know this son who gave up his life on the cross for us and who rose again, who defeated the darkness, who will one day totally banish all the darkness from creation. That is life itself. And it's my appeal to you today. If you don't know him, if you've never received this gift from him, this is for you. This is for you. There are a bunch of people in this room and who will be at the next service as well, who are not very successful in life. We've made a lot of mistakes in life, made a mess in so many different ways, gone our own way, tried to work it out for ourselves, tried to find salvation and satisfaction and meaning in all kinds of other things other than God. This is not a bunch of successful people. You might have that You might make that mistake when you come into church, thinking these people look like they've got it all sewn up. I want to let you in on a secret, and some people won't be very happy about that. None of us have it all sewn up. We've all failed in many ways. This is for you. You who have made a mess of your life. Maybe you've come to financial ruin. Maybe your marriage has failed. Maybe you've abused others. Maybe you've been abused. Maybe you've been addicted and caught up in all kinds of things and struggled to get free. This news, this life, this adoption into the family of God that is life in all its fullness is for you. To all who believed in his name, to all who receive him. You've got to receive a gift, friends. In order to do that, you've got to let go of the other things that you think, I just need to achieve this. If I only get these things right, then I will, be, I will know salvation. Then I will know fulfillment. You've got to let go of those things and say, I come empty-handed and I receive a gift. This is for you, my friends. This is for you. This Jesus who died on the cross for us, his gift is for you. This is the consistent message of the Bible. Romans Chapter 10, verse 9 says this, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. All because of Jesus. All because of King Jesus who entered into the darkness. 
all because of King Jesus who hung and died on a cross in our place and who rose again. This always existing one who took on flesh for us, it's because of him that we can know salvation. It's because of him we can know adoption into the family of God. Listen, John does not allow us to categorize Jesus as some good moral teacher or some inspiring leader like Gandhi or Martin Luther King. Jesus is in a category all of his own. He is far above all other human beings that have ever walked this planet. He is God in the flesh. And today he's got a gift for you. If you would receive it, you will receive adoption into the family of God. So we're going to worship him together. We're going to marvel together at the great incarnation, Jesus becoming flesh for us. And as we do that, if you, if you don't know him, this is a moment. You might want to sing along, but you might want to just put it in your own words. I want to I receive this gift today. We're going to rejoice together in King Jesus. We're going to hail him king together. Should we stand? And in the time we have remaining, we're going to worship Lord Jesus, this morning we come to worship you and we come to declare that you are king. You are the center of it all. There is no one like you, Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you, obedient to your Father, stepped into this world, took on flesh, made your dwelling amongst us. You know what it's like, Lord Jesus. You know of the darkness. You know it more than any one of us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you went to the cross for us. We thank you that you hung there and died at the hands of your creation to take upon yourself all the punishment for the wrong we've ever done. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you rose victorious, that death could not hold you down. And now you offer life you offer life to all who will believe, all who want to receive. And I pray that today would be a day of salvation where men and women across this room, in this service and the next, would come to receive, for the very first time, receive this salvation offer. We love you, Lord Jesus. We hail you as King. We say that you are the one for whom everything exists. It's all about you, Lord Jesus. And today we want to center our lives once again on that great truth. In Jesus' name, amen.